God bless you all and welcome to our Bible study series that we are doing in the book of Acts. We are studying the entire book of Acts from chapter 1 to 28. We are currently about to begin with chapter 14. And if you are following along in the notes, there are notes available for all of these studies and also recordings for any of the past sessions that you might have missed. You can find all of that information on our web website, which has been changed. Even if, you, even if you use the old web address, it'll direct you to the right place. But it's now newlifechurch-md.org. And that's all one word, newlifechurch-md for Maryland.org. And if you like to listen live on Wednesday nights, you can either join us on the telephone or you can also log in to MixLR.com, and our new broadcast name there now is New Life Church. So all one word, New Life Church, is our broadcast name, and you can also access all of the uh, previous recordings there as well. You know, I was sitting here uh, preparing this evening, about a half an hour ago, the sky became very dark and ominous, and you could hear the thunder rumbling off in the distance, and before you knew it, uh, just torrential rain was falling. And now, a half an hour later, I'm looking out the window, and the sky's blue, beautiful sunshine, and I was just sitting here thinking how quickly things can change. And sometimes we feel like we're in the middle of a dark storm, and it's never going to end it's never going to change. And I'll tell you something, all God has to do is blow with his wind and everything can change in a matter of minutes. And the wind of the Spirit is moving in our lives and in our situations. So you may be in one of those little storm clouds right now, but don't worry, the wind is about to move and the next thing you know you're going to have clear blue sky and the sun shining down on you. Uh, God is good, and He's good all the time, and we can trust Him, we can put our hope in Him, and He will never fail us. Amen. Okay, here we go. We're finally moving into Acts 14. We were parked for quite a while on one verse in Acts 13:48, but we want to move ahead now. And, you know, as we push further and further into the book of Acts, particularly looking at the Apostle Paul and his ministry and his journeys. I'll tell you something, these apostles were amazing men of God. The, the grace that was upon their lives, Acts 4 tells us, great grace was upon them. And the grace of God that was on these men's lives, because of their calling and because of their response to that call. God used them amazingly, and they suffered greatly for their calling. And we're going to see that again and again and again, particularly with the Apostle Paul. And remember, he was inflicting a great deal of pain, punishment on the early Christians, and God told him, now I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer for my name. And we're going to see that again tonight as Paul and Barnabas do their normal thing, 
whenever they came into a new city, they would look for the Jews who were there first. If it was a large enough city to have a synagogue, they would wait for the Sabbath and visit the synagogue first. They did that not simply because they had a Jewish background, but they understood a very important principle which we have already spoken about. The gospel salvation is first for the Jews. You see that principle all through the Bible. And the message of hope that finally came to the Gentiles was secondary to the offer of grace and salvation to the house of Israel, to the Jewish people. And so, in line with that principle, the apostles, as we've mentioned, they would always, it was their custom, to always go first to the Jews, to the synagogue, give them an opportunity to hear the message of the gospel. Then if they rejected that, and that was often the case, then they would turn to the Gentiles. So, Paul and Barnabas are now coming to a town called Iconium. And we want to read the first seven verses in Acts chapter 14. Acts 14, from 1 to 7. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of His grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lycaonian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. Now, we mentioned that verse 1 indicates, as usual, Paul and Barnabas went into the Jewish synagogue. This was always their custom. Um, I've given you a number of references in the notes. You can look them up if you want to see that this was a pattern that they followed. They went first to Jews, then to the Gentiles. I like what it says in verse 1 also. It says, There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. They spoke so effectively. The Amplified Bible says they spoke with such power that a great number, a great multitude of Jews and Gentiles believed. You know, the gospel is a message. It has to be preached. It has to be spoken. It has to be taught. And ultimately, our confidence is not in our speaking ability. It's in the power of God. It's in the Spirit of God. It's in the grace of God. Nevertheless, 
we must be able to speak clearly and effectively the Word of God. Paul talks about being able to rightly divide the Word of Truth. You don't do that casually. It takes study. It takes practice. It takes effort. And if you and I want to be effective in winning souls, effective in promoting and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, we're going to need to devote time and effort to it. We need to train. We need to study. We need to practice. We need to learn. We need to be familiar with the message. Now, the power is not in the messenger. The power is in the message. But if we screw up the message, then people are not going to receive the full benefits of that message. That's why our presentation of the message, namely the Word of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, we must work at it. Again, that's what 2 Timothy 2.15 says. Study, remember Paul's writing to a minister, Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. And, you know, I've heard some people just get up and ramble on and talk about this, that, and the other, crack a few jokes and tell some stories and Hopefully, in the end, somebody gets something out of it. No. These men spoke effectively. Their message was clear, it was sharp, and it had an effect. And this should be the desired effect when you and I speak for the Lord. It says they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. Oh, how we want to see that in our day. How we want to see that happening in our communities, in our circles. I don't care how many people clap or cheer and say, wow, that was a great sermon. You really are an excellent preacher. We're not interested in any of that. We're looking for the results. We're looking for the fruit. And Everybody can clap and cheer and say, what a wonderful message. But if there's no change wrought in the people's lives, it was all in vain. So may God raise us up, like Paul and Barnabas, to speak so effectively for the Lord that a great number of people come to believe. That was their testimony. And it's interesting, you remember... Just at the end of Acts 13, they had one of these situations with the Jews in the synagogue where many of them rose up against Paul, rejected the word of the apostles, and they literally had to shake the dust off of their feet and tell them, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. So, just after shaking all the dust off their feet in that place, Pisidian Antioch, here, what a wonderful reception they get from both Jews and Gentiles. Large numbers of people here embraced the preaching of Paul and Barnabas. But, and here we go again, starts to sound like a broken record, but there will always be those who refuse 
reject and fight against the word of God's grace. And indeed, we only need to get to verse 2 to see this. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. <clears throat> this expression, refuse to believe, is a strong word. It, it means to willfully and perversely disbelieve or be disobedient. In other words, it, it's an act of the will. It, it's something where a person stubbornly of their own will determines, I'm not going to believe in that, I'm not going to receive that. They refused to believe. They willfully and perversely rejected, again, the word of grace that the apostles were bringing to them. I want you to notice something else. They, the Jews, refused to believe, but they didn't cause the trouble directly. This is often what happens in the book of Acts. They would stir up other people to do their dirty work. Listen carefully to verse 2. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So there's sort of a secondary effect that they have on some of the Gentiles there who will now carry out the persecution. Again, this is a fairly common phenomenon that we find throughout the book of Acts. You have unbelieving Jews, in this case, willfully refusing to believe in Jesus Christ, obviously because of all the traditions and all the prejudice that they had in their minds, but rather than go out and cause trouble and persecute and oppose themselves, they found willing subjects that they could stir up and instigate to cause the trouble and to, in many cases, stir up riots and other things. So, they were the instigators of opposition, but they themselves were not the persecutors. They seemed to be masters at stirring up other people to carry out their wicked schemes. Verse 3 says, because of that, Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of His grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. <clears throat> Since I began this study last summer, one of the things that I think has impacted me more than anything else in the book of Acts is the boldness of the Christians, particularly the apostles. The boldness that they had. And may that be an inspiration to us not to be weak, not to be timid, not to be shy, but when the time comes for you and me to speak up for the Lord, be clear, be effective, and be bold. We have nothing to be ashamed of, 
nothing to hide, nothing to be afraid of. Paul in Romans 1.16 said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. We can be ashamed of our sins, ashamed of our carnality, ashamed of a lot of other things, but we're not ashamed of the Lord. We're not ashamed of the good news of the gospel. And you see that in these men of God. They were speaking boldly for the Lord. Even in the face of threats, opposition, persecution, and yes, even threats of death, they were still just as bold in their speech and in their demeanor. They were speaking boldly for the Lord, and it was the Lord who confirmed the message of His grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. So, despite all the opposition, all the trouble that was brewing in Iconium, the apostles again are preaching boldly for the Lord. It says they were preaching the message of God's grace. The translation in the King James is the word of His grace, which you also find later on in Acts 20. The word of God's grace. Of course, it's interchangeable. God's message is a message of grace. The gospel is the word of His grace. And how ironic, here they are offering the grace of God and people are rising up to oppose it. This is the pattern again all throughout the book of Acts. But, even in the face of opposition, God was there, as always, confirming His word with signs and wonders following. That was promised in Mark 16, and we've seen it time and time again in the book of Acts. It's not our job to confirm the word of God. It's our job just to deliver it, to speak it. The rest is up to God. We don't have to fake or pretend or make it look like a sign or a wonder happened. We just speak the word, step back, and let God do the rest. He's in the confirming business. We are in the speaking business. We speak the message of His grace, and notice carefully these words, God enabled them to do miraculous signs and wonders. They didn't have that ability. They weren't miracle workers. They couldn't just wave wands and make miracles happen. That's a wrong understanding of miracle signs and wonders. Miracle signs and wonders are gifts of the Holy Spirit. Gift is related to the word grace. They're the product of God's gracious enabling of that individual to be able to prophesy, lay hands on the sick and they recover, or to work miraculous signs and wonders. They had been enabled by the God of grace to do those things. And they proved that what they were speaking was the Word of God. That's why God confirms His Word with signs and wonders. It's His way of saying, Amen, that's true, that's my Word, I'm going to prove it to you. Here comes a miracle, here comes a sign, here comes a wonder. 
And, you know, signs and wonders come in all different shapes and sizes. doesn't necessarily mean somebody was raised from the dead or there was a miraculous healing. Obviously, those things are part of it. Sometimes, it's a much smaller little note that God leaves from heaven. It's a supernatural note. It's a sign that you can't explain naturally, and you look at it and you realize, ah, God was here. That was God confirming the word of His grace. We had an interesting example of that just recently in our church. A couple of Sundays ago, Pastor Tom was preaching, and he was preaching about the Word of God being the incorruptible seed of God. And as with any seed, it contains the DNA, the the genetic code. And it's no different with God's seed. When we're born again, we inherit that DNA, that divine nature of God. So Tom was preaching about seeds and how when you plant one kind of a seed, you're going to get that kind of a plant. And those of you that were there will remember all of this. But in the middle of his message, he paused and he turned to me and he says, Now Pastor Wayne here, he's a botanist. So Pastor Wayne, if you plant daisy seeds, what are you going to get? And I shouted, daisies. And he said, that's right. You're always going to get daisies when you plant daisy seeds. And he continued on with his sermon, and we finished the service. Right after the meeting, Sister Janet came up to me, and she had three or four little packets of seeds in her hand, and she said, Pastor, I've been carrying these around in my purse since last week. I forgot to give them to you last Sunday. Here, I know you like flowers and plants, so take these seeds. You can't make this stuff up. On the top of the stack was a packet of daisy seeds. Now you may say, oh, that's just a coincidence. If you want to believe that, that's fine. I realized right away that was a sign from heaven saying amen to the preaching we just heard. I've just sent my seed to you. If you received it, then you've received my DNA. And here's a little sign to prove it to you. So it doesn't have to be some big deal. It can be a little packet of seeds. It can be a little letter or card that comes in the mail. God has many, many ways of confirming his word and letting us know, this is me talking to you. This is me moving in your life. This is me at work. Trust me. Know that I am with you. So, by His grace, as the apostles were speaking the message of grace, God was giving them grace, enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The New Living Translation reads as follows, The Lord proved their message was true by giving them power to do miraculous signs and wonders. I find that interesting. God wants to prove to people that his message is true. We're prone to doubt. We're prone to all kinds of questions and 
analysis and, and all this. God knows that. He likes to prove to us that his message is true. Everybody gets on doubting Thomas's case. Oh, what a terrible apostle. He doubted Jesus. Come on, let's be real. We're all doubting Thomas's or Sam's or Bob's or Bill's. We're all full of doubt and unbelief. Half the time we're questioning, is this true? Can I really believe this promise? Is God really going to answer my prayer? God knows how weak and prone we are to unbelief. But don't forget what Jesus did just for Thomas. He showed up for Thomas and for Thomas alone to eliminate his doubts, to give him a sign and a clear proof so that he could move beyond his unbelief and start walking by faith. The Lord proves his message is true so that we can trust him. Many scriptures, I've listed a few here, that point to the importance of miracles, signs, and wonders. I get ill now when I hear these preachers on the radio or the TV saying, well, God's done with miracles. All the apostles are dead and gone now. So ever since the first century, we don't have any more miracles. We don't have any more apostles. Well, I'm sorry, but that is not the God I know. That's not the Bible I read. And I don't see at any point in history where God says, okay, last apostle's dead, uh, Holy Spirit can't do any more miracles, signs, or wonders. What foolishness. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we're going to see in the next verse that there weren't just 12 apostles minus Judas down to 11, and once those 11 were gone, we don't have any more apostles. The very next verse mentions two more men, namely Paul and Barnabas, both called apostles. There are a number of others in the book of Acts, and in the rest of the New Testament, in addition to the 11 original apostles who are called apostles. It's not something that ended with the death of Peter, James, and John. Apostles are one of the five gift ministries mentioned in Ephesians 4 that are needed for the preparation of the church and the preparation of the bride for the coming of the Lord. My goodness, we need apostles more now than they needed them in the first century. We need miracle signs and wonders more now than they needed in the first century. So that's a bunch of hogwash, bunch of baloney. Let's pray for apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Let's pray for all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray for the Word of God to be confirmed with mighty, miraculous signs and wonders, just as they were in Iconium. Okay, verses 4 to 6. When the apostles, notice that carefully, the apostles, plural, Paul and Barnabas are both called apostles here and again in verse 14. Paul and Barnabas, the apostles, learned of a plot amongst some Jews and Gentiles to assault and stone them. They fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia. I think this is fascinating. 
And I want to take a little time here and look at this. Sometimes the apostles, they stood their ground, they got beat up, they got killed, they got thrown into prison. And other times, like here, they run away. What's the deal? When are you supposed to run away? And when are you supposed to stand your ground? The fact that in this case, Paul and Barnabas fled from this place, hearing of a plot to kill them, that doesn't mean they were afraid. I have a simple answer. They fled because the Holy Spirit told them to flee. When the Holy Spirit told them to stay, they stayed. And if you have any doubt about that, after Paul gets stoned, he goes right back into the same city. Now, <laughs> that doesn't sound like fear to me. So, we have to be very careful trying to understand some of the actions of these apostles. On this particular occasion, the Word of God is very clear. They fled. They fled from impending danger. Their lives were threatened. It was very likely they were going to be put to death. So, they fled from that place. There are many other instances, and we're going to come upon some of them as we proceed further along in the book of Acts, where these very apostles and other Christians took their stand, even unto death. We've seen that already with Stephen. We're about to see it in some other cases. They stood, they didn't run away, they weren't afraid, they stood their ground and they suffered for it. They remained in place in spite of persecution and danger. Again, why sometimes they flee and why sometimes they stay. I can only come up with one explanation. There is no other reasonable explanation. The Holy Spirit told them when to stay put and when to flee. Now, adding to that, Jesus had given this teaching to his disciples in Matthew 10. I'm going to read just a portion of it, but you can read all of it in Matthew 10, 16 to 28. He said, Be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. And when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. That's pretty clear. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. So Jesus actually told them, when you get in trouble, flee. When you're persecuted, flee to another city. However, in that same passage, he goes on to say, but do not fear those who kill the body. So, they weren't fleeing in fear. They were fleeing because Jesus had told them to. The Holy Spirit had told them, get out of this place. Go to such and such a city. So, it is possible to flee, not out of fear, but out of obedience. They were fleeing, I believe, because the Holy Spirit told them to go. You can search the four Gospels, you can read through the book of Acts, you're not going to find any set list of methods or principles to follow. There's no set code of conduct or uh, a list of rules concerning these matters. 
each time they had to be listening to the Lord and led by the Holy Spirit. This is the overarching principle of the whole book of Acts. The Christians were led, guided, filled, and controlled by the Holy Spirit. It was all about what seemed good to the Holy Spirit, what is the Holy Spirit telling us to do now. In this case, he told them to run. He told them to flee. We can see in verse 7, they certainly weren't saying, well, we better lay low now, we better stop preaching because we're storing up a lot of trouble. Quite the, quite the contrary. <laughs> verse 7 says, where they continued to preach the good news. So, they fled from Iconium, they come to Lystra and Derby, and what do they do there? They start preaching. And while they're preaching in Lystra and Derby, it's going to get them in trouble again. Are they afraid of that? Doesn't seem like it. They're boldly and effectively preaching the gospel from town to town, city to city, wherever the Holy Spirit takes them, they're ready to preach. So, now that they're in Lystra and Derby, even when they're fleeing from persecution, just like the uh, Christians in Jerusalem in Acts 8, when they were scattered because of Saul, now Paul's persecution, what did they do? They went and they preached the word wherever they went. They weren't fleeing out of fear. They were just fleeing because God told them, you better get out of Jerusalem, go someplace else and preach there for a while. Paul and Barnabas did not lay low, hide out, keep quiet, sit still. They kept right on preaching the gospel. When one door closed, they moved on to the next open door. And that's the, the storyline of the book of Acts. They're just moving as the Spirit directs them, looking for any open door where they can present the message of God's grace. Okay, on to Lystra and Derby. I doubt we'll be able to complete this section tonight, but let's at least read uh, a rather lengthy portion of Scripture to describe this next adventure in Paul and Barnabas' ministry. Acts 14, from verse 8 to 20. In Lystra, there was a man crippled in his feet, who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Now we're going to see in this text that by this point in time, Paul seems to be the main preacher, the main speaker. You remember earlier on in the book of Acts, the order was reversed. It was Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas and Paul. Now it's Paul and Barnabas. And repeatedly it mentions Paul, and I think you'll see the confirmation of this shortly as we read. Paul was the main speaker. So here he is preaching. There's this crippled man listening. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed. That's fascinating. We're going to come back to that. And called out. 
stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lycaonian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. There, you notice that? They called Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles, there it is, the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We are, we too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then, here it comes, then some Jews came all the way from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. So, they start off in this place called Lystra. And God has set this whole thing up. You have to see the hand of God in each and every one of these scenes. These are not accidents. They're not coincidences. God has a crippled man that he's prepared to hear Paul preaching the gospel. The Spirit of God has already been working in this man's heart, perhaps for months or years. We don't know the background. But it's very curious and very interesting what happens here. As this crippled man is sitting there listening to Paul, it says, Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed. <clears throat> now, you can't see faith. Faith is invisible. Faith is a spiritual quantity. But it says, Paul saw it. He saw faith in this man. Just a side note, if you can see faith, you must also be able to see unbelief. In either case, it's a supernatural discernment. Paul was able to see in the Spirit that faith was rising up in this crippled man's heart. 
I believe this is one of the gifts mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12. It's called the discerning of spirits. That doesn't just mean demons. We discern a certain spirit in a person's life. In this case, Paul discerned a spirit of faith in this man. You can discern a spirit of unbelief. You can discern a spirit of bitterness or unforgiveness. You can discern an unclean spirit. It could also be an example, and these gifts overlap, the gift called the word of knowledge. Supernaturally, the Holy Spirit just dropped the word in Paul's spirit. That man has faith. He's ready to be healed. Whatever the case, Paul discerned supernaturally that this man is ready. He has faith to be healed. So, right in the middle of his sermon, right in the middle of his preaching, Paul takes a little break, he looks directly at the man, and he calls out, Stand up on your feet. And I can just imagine somebody in the crowd whispering to Paul, Paul, he can't stand up on his feet. He's been crippled since he was born. Paul knew that. That's not how the Word of God works. As the Word of God comes forth, it creates, it resuscitates, it revives, it heals. Stand up on your feet. As those words left Paul's mouth, it was the word of faith connecting with this man's faith, and bingo, he jumped to his feet and began to walk. Stand up on your feet. He's up on his feet. And a miracle takes place, not in private. This was in the public meeting. Many, many saw and heard. They witnessed firsthand this miracle. And that's why, in verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, now, Paul didn't really do anything. God did it. But according to their view, Paul did it. In any event, they saw it. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lycaonian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Since this miracle had been performed publicly, and it says Paul called out. He must have used a pretty loud voice, so many people heard him calling attention to this crippled man. They all knew him. All the people there knew him. So this attracted their attention immediately, and when they saw the man jump to his feet, oh, they went crazy. They were very much given to idol worship, they had all kinds of Greek gods that they worshipped. And so, they think the gods, plural, some of these gods that they worshipped, have actually come down in human form, in the form of Paul and Barnabas. The crowd thought Barnabas was Zeus, and they thought Paul was Hermes. They were actually bringing bulls, and wreaths, 
and other objects of their worship to present sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. Well, in their view, to Zeus and Hermes. Just a little side note, uh, Zeus was the Greek god, The if you've ever studied Greek mythology, I had to study it in high school, it's a bunch of foolishness, but anyway, uh, Zeus was the Greek mythological god believed to be the father of all the other gods and men. He's like the chief god, little g, Zeus. They thought Barnabas was Zeus, and obviously because of Paul's effective preaching and speaking, they attributed Paul to being the god Hermes, because Hermes was the messenger. He was the the chief messenger of the gods. Now, when God uses one of his servants, that may be you or me, be very, very careful. When God uses one of his servants, particularly in working a miraculous sign or wonder, as with Paul in this case, there is a subtle but very real danger, far more pernicious than any other kind of persecution, blasphemy, gossip, accusations, opposition. This is far worse than any of those things. What am I talking about? Worship. You see, man is a worshipful creature. We were made in the image and likeness of God. We were created to worship. And even in our fallen state, we still have that internal longing to worship a God. Well, in our fallen state, we can't worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Creator of heaven and earth. We have no relationship with Him. We're cut off from Him. So, Satan inspires those people to worship false gods. And the world is full of them. All kinds of idols. Not only statues and graven images, but invisible gods. Pride, arrogance, selfishness. um, All sorts of idols that people worship. Well, these people were prone to worship because... That's man's nature. Man wants to worship something or somebody, and they had adopted this worship of Zeus and Hermes. So it's only likely when Paul works this miracle, and they think the gods have come down in human form, let's prepare sacrifices, let's praise and worship these gods. Coming back to my point, when God uses one of his servants, it's it's a very dangerous thing, because worship and praise often comes our way. And not that 
the people understand what they're doing. That's just their nature. They want to worship something. They don't know how to worship the true God, so they worship the person or the persons that they can see. But this is very dangerous for the individual who's receiving that worship. The tendency for people to idolize and exalt the human instrument, put the pastor, the preacher, the prophet, the apostle on some kind of a pedestal. It's universal. It's very common. But again, it's very dangerous, particularly for that instrument. Here's what happens. They begin to focus their attention on the man, not on God. The man begins to get the glory, not Jesus Christ. And if this is allowed to continue, it can be very, very damaging, both to those offering that perverted worship, and to the instrument, the servant of God, who's receiving that praise and that worship. One of the scriptures that God showed me years ago that has helped me a lot in this regard is found in the book of Proverbs. You may think one of our greatest tests is starvation, deprivation, poverty, suffering, persecution, and, you know, the list goes on. But it's not. That is not our greatest test. Proverbs 27:21 is going to tell you the greatest and the most difficult of all tests. Are you ready? Here it comes. The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but man is tested by the praise he receives. Huh. Not by the lashes he receives, not by the abuse or the opposition he receives. He's tested most when he's in the limelight, when he's being praised, or as in the case of Paul and Barnabas. These people are ready to offer sacrifices to you. They're calling you one of their gods. Paul and Barnabas could have easily kept quiet and said, well, they don't know what they're doing. We'll just receive this and uh, pretend like it's okay. No, they understood the danger. And you and I better understand the danger. And here's the catch-22. God wants to use all of us. He wants to use us in miraculous ways. But that's going to attract attention, and it's going to draw praise. Be very, very careful. As soon as it starts coming your way, lift your hands up to heaven and deflect all of it toward the face of Jesus Christ and Father God, saying, Lord, this doesn't belong to me. This glory, this praise does not belong to me. It belongs to you. We already saw in Acts 12 what happens when you don't do that. Remember in the case of Herod, reading again from Acts 12, 21-23, On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, 
sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. He failed the test. Should have read Proverbs 27:21. A man is tested by the praise he receives. This is the voice of a God. Pastor, you preach like an angel today. You're such a great preacher. Oh, about time people recognize how smart I was, what a gifted speaker I am. Get ready, the worms are going to fall on you, my brother. He gave not the praise to God. Too many great men and women of God have gone this way to hell and destruction. It goes something like this. God raised them up, gave them grace, gave them glory, gave them gifts. They worked signs and wonders. People started to lift them up, exalt them, put them on a pedestal, pedestal bring them gifts and money and, and lavish them with praise and rather than give it all back to God and say, God, I'm a worm and no man. I don't deserve any of this. They started to drink in some of that praise and glory. And let me tell you something. God will not share His glory with anyone. He will not. The consequences are dire. And, as in other cases we've already encountered in the book of Acts, here, Paul and Barnabas passed the test. They were very careful to turn any of that glory, any of that praise, immediately and directly back to God. Let me remind you of two instances that we've already looked at, and we're going to have to close shortly here. Acts 3, verses 11 and 12, after Peter healed the man at the temple gate, he said to them, Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? You see, the temptation is, Well, yeah, I'm the man of power. I got it. Fear me. Praise me. No. Peter says, Why are you looking at us? We're just like you guys. We're just flesh. We're, we're, there's no good thing in us. Why are you staring at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? It's good to be godly. It's good to have God's power. But Peter didn't own that and say, well, yeah, it's because I'm so powerful, I'm so godly. That's why God worked this miracle. No, he turned all the praise right back to heaven. Acts 10 Again, with Peter, when he enters into the house of Cornelius, they fell at his feet in worship, in reverence. What does Peter do? Stand up. I am only a man myself. Maybe you and I better practice that. I am only a man. 
That's all I am. I am only a man. Why are you staring at me? Why are you praising me? Why are you giving me honor and glory and all this stuff? I am only a man. So, verses 14 to 17, and here we're going to have to quit. When the Lycaonians were about to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas, they vehemently urged the crowd to stop and turn to the living God. Verses 14 and 15. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? Listen to this. We too are only men, human like you. You know, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, when the anointing is on you, the sick are being healed, the dead are being raised, you can actually become delusional. And you start to think you're some kind of a superman or a super god. Good to remind yourself right then and there, I too am only a man. We too are only men. Don't worship us. Don't bring your sacrifices to us. We are just like you. We're men of like passions. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things. All your idol worship, all your sacrifices, it's all vain, it's all worthless. The reason we're here preaching to you is to get you to turn from all of this nonsense. Turn from your idolatry. Turn from these worthless things. They're not going to do anything for you. You can sacrifice a thousand bulls here today. It's not going to accomplish anything. Turn from these worthless things, worthless idols, to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. Notice when people like the Lycaonians put an apostle or a servant of God or someone on a pedestal, it's folly. That's what the Bible calls it. It's folly. We do it all the time. Here in the States, oh, we have our idols. We have our rock idols. We have our movie idols. We have our sports idols. Oh, they're like the gods come down. No, they're human. And sooner or later, you're going to find out just how human they are when they get arrested for drunk driving, or they kill someone, or they blow up and beat their wife. They're human. They're just like us. They might have a talent to shoot a few basketballs, or pass a football, or act in a movie. No big deal. They're still human. They're not gods. Don't give them any worship. Don't put them on a pedestal, because that is folly. Such activities are worthless and vain. The reason... Paul and Barnabas were there was to bring to them the good news of the kingdom, the good news of a living God who made heaven and earth. We're going to pick it up there next time. And because Paul and Barnabas are speaking to a Gentile crowd, notice the difference in their message. They're not going to quote a whole bunch of scriptures and, you know, Joel the prophet said this and Isaiah said that. They're just going to talk 
very simple language that they can relate to. God, who made all this stuff around you, we're going to tell you who He is. You can worship the true and the living God and turn from all these worthless idols. Let's stop there for tonight, and we'll continue right there next time. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are the living God. And Lord, you've called us to turn from idols, from vain and worthless things, to worship and to know our Maker, our Creator, the Creator of heaven and earth, the source of all grace, all power. And God, we pray that like Paul and Barnabas, we can speak effectively and we can speak boldly on your behalf, speaking not our opinions, not our clever jokes and stories, but speaking the Word of God. And Lord, help us to study, to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen who can rightly divide the Word of Truth. Lord, we want to be effective only insofar as the presentation of the Gospel brings souls to salvation. We want to see many coming to faith, as we saw in the case of Paul and Barnabas and their ministry. God, give us boldness in these last days to speak your word. Lord, we cry out to you to extend your mighty hand and confirm that word with signs, wonders, and miracles proving that your word is true. God, I thank you for each and every one with us in this Bible study tonight. Let this word sink deep into our hearts, encourage us, strengthen us, prepare us for the ministry that you've called each one of us to do. We commit ourselves to your grace, to your word, and now, Father, bless us, keep us. Make your face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. Lift up your countenance upon us and give each one of us your shalom, peace, health, healing, wholeness, and strength.